The text this morning is from Paul's epistle to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, you uh, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish uh, those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you who were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Once again, thank you to Mason for agreeing to lead worship that this week, not that week, this week. Get my uh, relative pronouns confused there, but um, it's a help to me and certainly want to uh, exploit Moise, Mason as much as we can, exploit Moison, exploit Mason as much as we can while he's here. Uh, as you can tell, I have trouble speaking words, so any, any amount that we can save my voice is great, but... Uh, Mason, um, this past week, was, I believe, uh, traveling a bit to learn about support raising for the campus outreach position that, that he'll be joining, and this coming week I will be in uh, St. Louis for uh, one of my Doctor of Ministry classes. So, um, Life seems like it's a never-ending to-do list, doesn't it? Uh, we're all always busy, and it's probably difficult for you uh, while you're here listening to me talk. Probably some part of your brain is, is on your to-do list as we speak for the rest of the day, right? Um, those to-do lists can be helpful. It's helpful to have a to-do list, right, to actually make a list, so I've heard anyway, to stay organized and make sure that uh, you remember things and, and that sort of thing. I haven't figured out how to do that yet, but to-do lists are helpful if they're servants, uh, but they make terrible masters, right? Uh, that is essentially uh, what our sermon series is about today, the gospel of the to-do list, you could call it. 
today we're discussing the second false gospel in our sermon series on fake news or good news. In many ways, the fake good news that we talk about today is the opposite of last week's fake news. Uh, last week we talked about quietism. Quietism essentially says good news, uh, salvation is of the Lord, so you don't have to do anything at all. Just calmly accept things the way that they are. Don't worry about doing any good in the world or even in your own life. Just sit back, let go, let God. You know, since you are passive in your justification, you remain passive in the rest of the Christian life entirely. And quietism rightly sees that we don't work to earn our salvation, but then wrongly concludes that we don't work at all, right? Any exhortation to do anything is seen as salvation by works. Moralism essentially agrees that any exhortation to do anything is salvation by works, but it's fine with salvation by works. Moralism says good news. We have a moral code, and if you just follow it, you'll be saved, you'll be good. If you uh, conform to our values, then you and your life will have value. So it's not news in the sense of a report of something that's happened somewhere. It's more of news in the sense of a public service announcement or just news that tells you uh, what you ought to be doing. Um, maybe the news media you feel is, is already that way, but uh, moralism just says do this and you will live. So a few questions here to ask about moralism. Um, what does it look like today, and then what's so bad about it? Uh, where do we see moralism in the world today? Do we see it? Yeah, all over the place, right? Near, nearly every world religion amounts to some form of to-do list. Whatever salvation looks like uh, in that religion, in the end, the religion itself is a set of instructions for how you need to achieve it by doing good works or some kind of uh, meditation or something of that nature. Outside religion, most forms of, of secularism also promote their own kind of to-do list, right? Uh, salvation amounts to personal fulfillment or human advancement or some such thing, and we've got to achieve that, right? Uh, certainly the secular left presents us with an ever-changing to-do list of issues to advocate for and language to adopt or abandon. Uh, the religious right, of course, has its own long history of moralism from prohibition in the 20s to uh, 90s youth groups banning their secular CDs, burning their secular CDs, I should say, to, uh, you know, internet diatribes about yoga pants or things like that today. Uh, the general attitude of our culture seems to be across the spectrum that you must be outraged by the things I'm outraged about. You must despise the people I despise. If you don't, you're, you're probably secretly one of them, right? But I could spend all of my time today smugly moralizing about how moralistic our society has been, um, but that's a little too ironic. Yeah, I really do think. Uh, a better question is, where do we see moralism in our own lives? Where might you or I today be finding our hope, our value, our salvation in who we are or what we've done or not done? So here are just a, a few breeds of moralism that you might be tempted by, and I'm sure we could add others, but I've, I've just got four. Uh, the first one would just be straight-up salvation by merit. Maybe there are some of you today who believe 
in straight-up salvation by works. If I ask you why you're going to heaven, you start talking about how you strive to be a good person, do good things, try not to do the sins, and so forth. Maybe you feel your good deeds outweigh your bad ones. Maybe the bad ones don't count because they're somebody else's fault, right? Uh, Maybe it's not so much about the deeds themselves you do, but the kind of life you're trying to live marks you as the right kind of person, a good person with good intentions, not like those bad people. However you slice it, the bottom line is that the answer to the question, your answer to the question, why are you going to heaven, starts with the words, because I fill in the blank with whatever it is about you. Or maybe you wouldn't even say it out loud that way, but deep down you think God accepts you in this life um, and the next because of who you are, because of what you've done for him. That's the first uh, kind of moralism. A second would be sort of a faith plus work, so you try to combine them. It's a bit more subtle. Uh, This breed says, yes, we need grace. Thank God for his grace, but then we need to add to that, we need to do our part, right? Uh, Yes, we need Christ. Here's the list of things that you must do to get Christ, maybe. You need his help, but he helps those who help themselves. Jesus paid the penalty for my sins, wiped my slate clean, and now it's up to me to do something, make something of that blank slate on my own steam. Uh, The the Christian life started by grace, but we're going to finish it by our own merit. Or as Paul describes this view in Galatians Chapter 3, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or, as the self-righteous Pharisee said in Luke chapter 18, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he gives God the credit. Thank you, God. It's your work, God, that made me such a good person. Not thank you that you're such a good God, even though I'm a sinner, but thank you that I'm a good person. In my experience, uh, this view is very common. It's rare to say it out loud exactly that way. And instead, what you can find is a general attitude that, okay, the lost need the gospel, right? The unsaved people. That's who the gospel is for. And for born-again Christians, what you guys really need is a to-do list. You've already got a a ticket to heaven. The important thing right now is to get to work at being the right kind of person, So here's how to be good parents, good spouses, good givers to the church, obviously, good voters. You know, I I once attended the funeral of a young man who had tragically taken his own life. And the minister there gave a quaint little message about putting out a special red plate at at family mealtime. And over dinner, you say encouraging things to whoever happens to sit with that red plate. And this is the gospel As far as I could tell, the only gospel that he held forth, the only light that he had to offer to shine in this darkness was find cute little ways to say nice things to people. I wanted to punch him in the face. (laughs) That's the second breed of, of moralism. A third one would be adding to the law, adding to God's law. On paper, you might have a solid understanding of the relationship between faith and works in the Christian life, but you are requiring works of yourself or others that God does not require. You're you're binding consciences where they ought to be free. To do this, you have to look away from from God. There are Christians who do this explicitly, railing against alcohol or dancing or PG-rated movies. 
And they might, may rightly complain about how some people twist the scriptures to allow things that God prohibits, but they themselves twist scripture to prohibit things that, that God allows. And I'm not talking about differences of, of conscience here either. In other situations, it can kind of be more of a, an attitude of the heart or, or just a, a culture than explicit teaching. In other words, the way we act can contradict what we say we believe. For example, you might find circles of Christianity where people say things like, you know, parents are free to educate their children however they see fit, you know, public or private or homeschool. But we all know what really God, godly Christians pick, right? Uh, women are free to work outside the home or to stay home, but the ones who stay home are, are creepy and repressed and probably part of some kind of cult. And the ones who go uh, to work, they're greedy and, and unruly feminists, uh, things like that. You know, we're not going to tell you how to vote, but if you vote that way, you'd better keep it to yourself. Uh, it can be doctrine rather than behavior, right? Uh, you don't have to be a Calvinist to be a Christian, right? You just have to be a Calvinist to be a good Christian, attitude that maybe you have encountered. I don't know. I probably have held to that attitude at some point in my life, so I'm making the pulpit into a confessional here. In other words, there are subtle ways that uh, we can express a heart assumption that says this or that extra command, maybe it's not so much required for salvation, but it is required for maturity, for full Christian fellowship. There are some things, if you differ from us, you're, you're welcome here. Uh, but we'll just look at you like you have three heads th the whole time. You, you might not feel super welcome. In, in other words, with our words we can say you're free, but with our actions we can put pressure on people to conform to some extra-biblical laws. That's breed number three. And number four, uh, certainly all of these things can lead to, and this is definitely more of an attitude of the heart than a creed or confession, uh, I'm calling this the moralism of self-doubt. I call this moralism because it is. On some level, you accept the moralist's assertion that you must measure up to have any value or hope of salvation. But you're a little wiser than the Pharisee in Luke 18, a little more self-aware. Instead of boasting in your goodness, you experience some kind of anxiety. Do I really belong? Am I good enough? Do I measure up to that standard? You believe or fear that moralism is true, but find yourself crushed under its weight rather than boastful that you've fulfilled it. And you can go a few different places from there. You can get defensive. Maybe you start fighting moralism with more moralism by appealing to laws that, other laws that, that you know and you keep that, that others don't. Maybe you attack the moralizers themselves. So something like, you know, okay, I may conform to the sinful world's ways in this issue, but at least I'm actually in the world trying to reach the world, trying to engage with unbelievers. Maybe rather than getting defensive, you simply despair of any freedom or joy. Maybe you dwell on your shame, your guilt, beating yourself up, even this can be moralistic. You start thinking on some level, I'm, I'm saved by the merits of my own uh, penance and self-loathing, how much I can psychologically torment myself. Or maybe you just give up entirely. I can't do it. Why try? This might be the closest that moralism comes to the truth. 
I'm a sinner. I can't do it. But instead of turning to the true gospel, you just collapse back into quietism. You've come full circle. So at this point, you can probably tell um, I don't like moralism very much. But um, more than what I think about it, what does God think about it, right? And this is where we start answering the question, what's really wrong with moralism? The book of Galatians has a lot to say about moralism. This is a letter that the, the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, and these were churches tempted uh, to a kind of moralism called legalism. There were some false teachers uh, teaching this kind of legalism. Legalism and moralism are pretty similar. Legalism is essentially just uh, moralism within a religious context or specifically some kind of Judeo-Christian context. It's moralism that appeals to God's law as the standard. So salvation is obedience to God's law. And in Galatia, uh, the specific law that had become the focal point of this was circumcision. There were false teachers called Judaizers who basically said Gentiles need to become Jews. Non-Jews need to first become Jews, Old Testament Jews, essentially, in order to receive Christ. And this required circumcision for Gentile men. Uh, for the kids among us, I will just say that circumcision is a way of marking the body of a man or a boy. In Old Testament times, it was required to be a part of the nation of Israel. If you want to know more, ask your parents, and they'll decide if you need to know more just yet. But that was the fake news in Galatia. Non-Jews must become uh, Jews if they want to be part of the church. You can't be a part of the church unless you conform to not only circumcision, but all of these laws, but circumcision is certainly the entry point. Now, there's a rabbit trail we could chase here. There's always a rabbit trail, right? So many rabbits. Uh, but we could wonder, why is that specific issue wrong, but other things like don't murder aren't wrong? Uh, certainly it's not wrong to not murder, right? How do we interpret Old Testament laws? Well, Paul's letter to Galatians, it shows that there's a deeper issue than just how to read the law. So behind these Judaizers' misapplication of the Old Testament is the idea that obedience to law of any kind is what saves. So Paul never says, look, guys, that circumcision stuff, that's just ceremonial law. It's fulfilled. No one has to keep it. Just focus on the moral law instead. No, what he does is he targets the whole law and says, keeping this will not save you. Therefore, um, what Paul has to say about this specific kind of moralism that was going on in Galatia can certainly be applied to any kind of moralism. If moralism based on God's own law revealed in Scripture is fake news, then surely moralism based on anything else for a standard of morality is even faker news, right? So in the text that Mike read for us earlier, Galatians 5, 1 through 15, there are at least eight things. Actually, I thought of a ninth while I was sitting there and Mike was reading it. At least eight things, though, that, that uh, are wrong with moralism. For that matter, when I was talking to Mason earlier this week, we found several more. I'm not going to run through all of those, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on each, each one, so don't worry. This isn't, you know, a 12-point sermon or anything like that. Uh, but I, I think as we just briefly work through all of the things that uh, Paul hammers on that are wrong with moralism... You'll kind of get the picture here. First, so point number one about moralism. Moralism does not come from God. 
We read that in verse 8. And by the way, I'll be bouncing around in the passage here. Verse 8 says, This persuasion, talking about the legalism, is not from him who calls you. Moralism is not from God. This is not how God said to approach him. Even in the case of the law of Moses, Paul says uh, earlier in his letter, essentially makes the case, it wasn't given as a way to be justified before God. It was given as a kind of tutor to teach God's people that they need the grace that would ultimately come in Christ. In other words, the whole reason God gave that law is to teach people that moralism doesn't work. So if moralism isn't from God, who's it from? If it's fake news, then it's a lie. Where do lies come from? Who's the father of lies? You, you want to trust in his idea of a gospel? I don't think so. So second, since moralism is not from God, it's not what God says, moralism actually constitutes disobedience to God. You find that in verse 7, where Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? They were running well before moralism came in. Now they have been hindered by that moralism from obedience. Obedience to the truth. By trying to earn their justification, satisfy God through obeying the law, they are in fact failing to obey the truth of God. Now, the truth most likely refers to the gospel, and it's a bit interesting and provocative to think of obedience to the gospel. But Paul's point is this. Moralism is disobedient. Moralism is unrighteousness. Moralism is not what God told you to do with his law. So thirdly, and somewhat ironically, moralism turns out to be antinomian. Antinomian is generally seen as the opposite of legalism. It's a kind of quietism. Antinomian means anti-law. It says that since you're not saved by law-keeping, law can just be disregarded altogether. Well, how does legalism, how does moralism end up being antinomian? Well, it has to disregard the law, at least in part. It must lower the standard of law down to the level of something that I'm capable of keeping, right? If I'm going to be justified by law, I want it to be a law that I can achieve, right? So, hence, Paul uh, needs to instruct the Galatians in verse 3. He says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. So, presumably, on some level, they must have thought, if I just check off this box of circumcision or, or maybe a few other ceremonial things, I can call it, a, call it a day, right? I'm good. Moralism often works that way, doesn't it? Folks who tend to be moralistic, they tend to have soapboxes and, and pet issues. And as long as you're with us on the, the sins and virtues that we really care about, uh, your other sins, that, that can be excused, right? Just, just hit the main points that I'm passionate about and all that other stuff, yeah, it doesn't matter. And this brings up a fourth problem with moralism. It doesn't even work. Moralism fails to make people moral. doesn't help you to actually obey. I think this is implicit in the Galatians text, but just to make it clearer, uh, in less time, I'll bounce over to Colossians chapter 2. This is Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Read it for us. Paul says to the Colossians, 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Think about that for a minute. All these regulations, extra rules, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value in stopping sin. Rules, as it turns out, don't make rule followers. There's an excellent uh, case study of this spanning several centuries called the Old Testament. Moralism just doesn't make us more moral. What moralism is good at, and this is issue number five, moralism is good at making more moralists. In verse 9, Paul says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That is to say, a little bit of yeast makes the whole batch of dough into a yeast dough. You can't add yeast to the bread dough and have it stay in just that part of the batch. It's going to spread throughout. Moralism, then, cannot peacefully coexist alongside the gospel of freedom in Christ. A church that tolerates legalism is a church that will be defined by legalism if it's not already. You can't allow just a little bit of extra commands, just a few unbiblical hoops to jump through as requirements for salvation, just so we can all get along. If you add to salvation by grace alone the slightest sliver of merit, that grace isn't alone anymore, is it? It's either alone or it's not. That's why Paul is so fired up about this. That's why he said in chapter 1 to let these false teachers be anathema, to send them packing. And if the Galatians don't heed Paul's warnings, they'll learn the hard way the sixth problem with legalism. Now I need two hands. It destroys the church. Final verse that Mike read, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This might seem like an odd left turn into uh, just peaceful coexistence, or maybe cannibalism, I guess, if you, you don't follow the metaphors there, but this is a metaphor for just kind of attacking one another. How does moralism fit with destroying fellowship of the church? Think again about that Pharisee in Luke 18. What did he say? He didn't say, Thank you, God, that I measure up to your standard. He said, thank you that I'm not like other men, sinners and tax collectors, tax collector right over here. Thank you that I'm not like him, right? Deep down, I think the Pharisee on some level knows he doesn't measure up to that actual standard. He doesn't have the gall to pray that prayer, right? But, hey, at least I'm doing better than that guy, right? That's how moralism works. Earlier I said that moralism wants to lower the standard to something we can keep, and that's one strategy that moralism employs to justify the self, and this is another strategy, tearing down others to make myself look better. For this reason, 
You simply cannot build the church on the fake good news of moralism. Moralism automatically gives us such great incentive to compare ourselves and attack each other. You can build a temporary coalition around a specific set of values, but even then it won't be long before it continues to tear itself apart. Seventh, moralism not only destroys fellowship within the church, but it destroys fellowship with God. Look at verse 2 and then verse 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. To put it bluntly, moralism sends people to hell. You cannot have both Christ's righteousness and your own. Think of it this way. I've already said that moralism is not from God, but from Satan. I've said it's disobedient to God. It fails to make you a good person. It lowers the standards of God's law. It rips apart the church by tearing down those for whom Christ died. It spreads all of this damage like a cancer in the body of Christ. Would you take up such things and offer them to God as a pleasing sacrifice? Can you really presume to hold on to such rank, blasphemous sin and call yourself a follower of Christ? You think back to our study of Luke so far, uh, the series we've paused to, to do this one. Which seems to be a bigger obstacle to people, in Luke or any of the Gospels, to coming to Christ? Immorality or moralism? It's clearly moralism. Drunkards, prostitutes, tax collectors all come to Jesus while Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law reject him and ultimately seek to have him killed. Moralism is a bigger problem because it's not merely sin. It's the delusion that I can be accepted by God by something so perversely sinful as moralism. It offers unrighteousness to God as a plea for justification. There's an even more fatal flaw, and this is found in verse 11, the second part of verse 11. Paul says, in that case, the case of, if you were preaching moralism, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In the next chapter, Paul is going to peg the Judaizers as simply trying to avoid persecution. Surely there are many ways we could avoid persecution or slander or hostility if only we would uh, swear wholehearted allegiance to the moralism of one tribe or another. Freedom in Christ is unpopular with people who are trying to control you. But moralism has no place for the cross. The cross is offensive to moralism. The cross refuses to get on board with the agenda of the moralist. The cross is about what God has done for us in Christ, not what you're trying to get me to do. The cross displays the Father's love for us beyond all our hope of deserving. The cross shows us the Son's perfect obedience in our place. The cross shows us how utterly immoral and truly sinful we are in our sinful nature, that the payment for our sin should require something like the eternal Son of God to be humiliated and tortured to death. The cross shows us that God justifies the ungodly, and only the ungodly. 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The cross destroys moralism. See, the real good news, it's always better than the fake news. First of all, because it's true. Moralism is not from God, it's from Satan. The gospel is good news sent from God himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God's word is true because God is true. The real good news will not fail because God will not fail to do all he has promised. Moralism is disobedience to God. The gospel gives us, gives us the perfect obedience of Christ, his perfect spotless righteousness as our righteousness, as our justification received through faith alone. Abraham believed God and what? It was credited to him as righteousness. God looks on his son, looks to the cross, and pardons us. Do you want to please God? Simply trust him and receive what only he can give you. Moralism is antinomian. It destroys the law of God. Paul said in Galatians 5.14 that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The threats and promises of law may change behavior, but not hearts. You can train a donkey with a carrot and a stick, but only the gospel can teach your heart to love God and love neighbor. Only the gospel can teach you. Only the gospel can fulfill in your life any shred of what the law is really about. Love God and love neighbor. And so, since moralism does not work, doesn't actually make people moral, the gospel tells us that God is at work in us, and he will be faithful to finish that work. The Holy Spirit is in us to bear his fruit. God transforms us in this life, and in the end, we will outlive sin. We will be made righteous entirely, holy entirely. As moralism destroys the church, teaching us to tear each other down and build ourselves up, the gospel teaches us to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow believers, sinners for whom Christ died, just like ourselves. The gospel trains us to love and forgive and to serve each other, just as Christ loved and forgave and serves us. The gospel alone takes very different people and makes them all one in Christ Jesus. That's the message of Galatians. And as moralism destroys fellowship with God, the gospel restores us to fellowship with God. The gospel is the truth that we, through faith alone, are united to Christ. Through Christ we have the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. The gospel brings us up into the life and fellowship of the, the, the eternal trinity, gospel gives us life and gives it abundantly. And just as moralism removes the offense of the cross, but also its glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ may be offensive, but it certainly magnifies the glory of the cross. Jesus paid it all. To God alone be the glory. It's from the cross that we hear the words, it is finished. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you that you have set us free in Christ from the weight of law that we could not ever hope to carry. For we confess we are sinful people down to the core. We have turned against you, and yet you still turn toward us. You sent your Son to bear the penalty of the law, the penalty that your holy justice required, so that we can be set free. We confess that even though you have set us free, we are tempted to misuse that freedom. We are tempted to abandon that freedom. Each of us this morning has some way in which we are tempted to submit again to some kind of yoke of slavery, to submit again to the idea that we can earn our place with you. So, Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts how wonderful our freedom truly is, that we might believe, that we might trust, that we would not be like the Israelites on the way to the promised land, thinking life is hard, let's go back to slavery. Slavery in Egypt promises us all these things, but you have promised so much more than moralism could ever hope to provide. It only destroys. But you sent your Son that we might have life and have it abundantly. May we not submit again to any yoke of slavery. May we not tolerate the smallest leaven of legalism in our lives. We're also reminded that toward the close of the passage, Paul also said that we should use our freedom to serve one another. And so we pray that as the message of the gospel sinks down deep in us and pries our hands off the hope of moralism, may we then use that freedom to serve you and to serve your people in our in our joy in what you have done for us, seeing each other as sinners for whom Christ died, seeing the hope, the beauty of this gospel that the world so desperately needs. Transform us, not into people who would deny our freedom or use it for as an opportunity for the flesh, but as you have set us free, so help us to be free to serve and glorify you. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.